Well, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9, please. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. As we continue through this wonderful Gospel, have you learned much from the study of Matthew over the last year? It's been over a year. We started in Matthew over a year ago. Isn't that amazing? So let's, let's dig into Matthew's gospel together. Let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word, please. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Dear Father God, as we read your word this morning, we are struck by the reality that your son Jesus Christ calls this tax collector who was unworthy of even public acceptance. Yet Jesus calls him to follow and he calls himself the physician. Father, we, we suffer physical ailments and we go to physicians and doctors to get medical care, but your son, Jesus Christ, is showing us something much more important here, that the disease of sin that controls our lives is something that he has come to cure. Wow. So God, I pray that in your, your wisdom, through your word today. I pray that you would illuminate for us what it is you wish for us to see. Illuminate for us, Father, through your spirit, exactly what this idea of mercy is and why is that most important. Lord, this is your time. I will ask that you speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Today, as, even as I'm struggling this morning with a little bit of a head cold, we, we are reminded that we do have physical ailments. And we do have medical attention. We, we have doctors, we have nurses, we have medical things that help us. Even today, I mean, I pulled out my, my drawer full of medications and concoctions and stuff and tried to get my head cleared up. You know, we have these things, you know, whether it be herbal teas, whether it be pills, whatever it is, we've got something because there is something about us that is not well. Now, as we read this text, it's interesting to see what Jesus is doing here. Matthew's gospel continues uh, in this. It's not a, as fast a pace style as, as Mark's gospel was, but it's, he's, going, it's, he's laying out a scene here going from one healing to another, one person of ministry to another. And in, in the last week, we looked at Jesus healing the paralytic. This man who could not walk was carried by his friends to Jesus for healing. And Jesus heals him. But first of all, he forgives him. You notice that? Now we're looking at this next scene in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew's gospel now takes us to a scene where Jesus is seen. He witnesses an outcast 
in a job that plunders the people. This is what Matthew's job was. Matthew was somebody who was far from God on the outward side. I mean, it looked like he was a, a far from God because of the pr- profession that he took up. Jesus shows his authority here. He shows his authority over sin by a showing his authority over this diseased life of sin. He calls Matthew, who does not actually ask Jesus, can I follow you? Notice this. Jesus calls Matthew out of an act of mercy and grace. This is an interesting scene, and as Jesus does this, there's a reaction from Matthew as he, Matthew brings Jesus to his home for a great feast. And of course, every time Jesus hangs out with the sinners and those who need him the most, the Pharisees always seem to show up with the finger pointing and the wagging. So this is a, a, a typical scene in the Matthew's Gospel, but we're going to understand a little bit deeper here some main points. Here, here's some things I want us to see. First of all, Jesus' calling of Matthew is out of this vile place, and this profoundly shows God's grace and His mercy. Matthew's eagerness to follow, I think, also shows us this divine power of Jesus' words. Follow me. And then Jesus responds to the Pharisees here. This encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees shows us who Matthew and all the other tax collectors and sinners were. They were the ones who were ill with the disease, and they needed, they needed a physician. And so Jesus is the one who cares for them. And we'll unpack that here in a second. But then lastly, in, in verse number 13, Jesus quotes Hosea's prophecy Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. We're going to unpack that. Why is Jesus showing this? Why is he quoting this to the Pharisees of all things? And what exactly is this meaning? So let's set the scene here. Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Imagine here, Jesus has come from across the sea at, uh, in chapter 8, and as he's coming back, he's healing the paralytic in the, in the house. And then as he's passing on from there, he, he walks by the Roman tax booth, the tax house. Now, Matthew's account of this day, I think it's very intriguing. Because think about this. This is Matthew himself sharing with us in his gospel the moment that Jesus calls him to follow. It's a very personal sharing, a personal telling. Here's where Jesus met me, and he called me, and I followed him. This, this, got to put this in perspective. Matthew is giving us a glimpse into his thinking and into his experience with Christ here. The scene here continues just like from the 8th chapter into the ninth chapter. It follows the healing of the paralytic, um, and we see here where Matthew says, and Jesus passed on from there as if he were constantly on the move from one miraculous encounter to another. And this scene is that Jesus passed by the coastal scene, down by the, the Sea of Galilee, and at the Sea of Galilee there was clearly this customs house or this tax booth, a place where Roman taxes were collected. And how were these Roman taxes collected? They were... a Taxes were assessed on the value of the trade goods that came through Capernaum. Capernaum was right there on the Sea of Galilee. Now, it was the role of the tax collectors like Matthew 
to actually assess the value of the merchant goods that were coming through at that time. And then the tax collectors, by assessing the value of the trade goods, they were then tasked with collecting the appraised value. Now, how many of us in this room in the last few weeks received a tax notice from the Putnam County Tax Assessor? Probably in the last month. Anybody get a letter? Y'all get a letter? Some of you did. What happened to your taxes this year? They assessed everybody's property more valuable than it was last year. But everything's going up. I mean, milk's going up, peanut butter's going up, gas is going up. Everything's getting more expensive. But you can imagine this kind of a system with Matthew. He was a tax collector, and there was no real set tax rate. The system was this. You are the tax collector. You look at the value of the goods coming through, and you place an assessment as it comes through. Guess what? You could pay one amount one time. You could pay a higher amount the next time. It depends on who the tax collector was and what kind of mood they were in. What does that breed? Corruption. It's corruption. And so Matthew's uh, job here, he was in this appraisal system, this tax collecting system that allowed for great fluctuation in the taxes collected based on the value that was assessed at the point. And this led to personal corruption, not just of the profession, but of the men who did this job. Matthew must have been responsible here for the shipping trade on the Sea of Galilee. Because Mark's gospel, Mark's account of this, Mark chapter 2, says that Jesus went out again by the seashore. Matthew's account doesn't say that he went by the seashore, but we can, we can assume that's where he was at based on Mark's account. Mark chapter 2 verse 13 says that Jesus went out again by the seashore. So this tax booth, this tax house, customs house, must have been right there on the seashore near whatever, whatever docking system that they had there in this small village. Here was the customs house. You come to Capernaum, you unload your boat, you got to walk right by there and pay the taxes. This was Matthew's job. Now, it's not clear in this passage whether Matthew was the most corrupt tax collector there was, but in this profession, by merely belonging to this professional class of tax collectors, Matthew, he was clearly tainted by it. Matthew doesn't really confess much here in his account but I think we could glean from the reputation of the tax collectors that Matthew himself was corrupt. To what level, we don't know. He doesn't share. But just being in that profession, being around corrupt people, Matthew clearly himself was corrupt. He would have been, he would have been despised in this Jewish society. He would have been excommunicated from the Jewish culture for doing this job. He would have been despised right along with all the other corrupt people. My grandfather, I shared this from the pulpit, I think, a few times, but my grandfather told me one time when I was young, and it has always stuck with me, he told me, he said, son, it doesn't matter whether you've done the bad thing or not, but if you're with the people who've done the bad thing or you're in close proximity, you're just as guilty. And that stuck with me from a childhood all the way up. Avoid corruption at all costs. Yet Matthew here, he's... If you were reading this gospel or you were hearing it read at the time that Matthew was sharing this, everyone would have understood what Matthew's job was. They would have understood that he would have been excommunicated from the community. But I think that we can infer from Matthew's calling here, he's including his story of his calling in this gospel account because he's sharing with us that he was guilty of the same sins of all of the corrupt tax collectors, the publicans. 
He's sharing this with us, letting us know in his gospel, I was one of them, yet Jesus called me anyway. He was guilt by association or guilt by action. He was guilty, period, no matter what, no excuses. He was guilty of the corruption and the sin of that particular class of professionals. I think more deeply here we see that Jesus' calling of Matthew I think this shows us that Jesus calls the undeserved to follow him. He does not call the religious elite. He calls the undeserved. He calls the outcasts. He calls the excommunicated. This is the role, I mean, this is the status of the faithful. Those who follow Christ are the ones who are called to be separate from the fallen, corrupt world. We are called, but we are unworthy. Yet we're still called. Matthew here, I think, was selected for a purpose. Jesus selects him, somebody that no one else would have selected. Jesus selects a tax collector sitting in the customs house doing his job. And he just says, Matthew, come follow me. Why does he do this? I think Matthew was selected for a purpose. Everything that Jesus does in the Gospels has a purpose. Not an accident. And Jesus calls Matthew for a reason, to show that the calling of all of the church, the calling of all Christians, depends not on the merits of our own righteousness, but on Christ's pure kindness and mercy. Ponder that for a minute. For Jesus, who is God incarnate, to call anyone to forgiveness and repentance... To call anyone to follow him. He was sinless and holy. He is still the Lord God Almighty. Jesus Christ calls all of us, and we're not worthy of it. That's what Matthew is sharing with us here. Christ's calling of us depends not on our efforts, not on our merits, not on our own righteousness, but on his pure kindness. This is what we call mercy. Do you know what mercy is? Mercy and grace go together, but they're different ideas. We're going to unpack that a little bit today. Mercy is meeting someone in their circumstances and showing them kindness in that circumstance. That's mercy. Caring, loving kindness is all part of mercy. And Matthew was not only a gospel witness to Jesus, but Matthew here, he was also called by Jesus to preach the gospel. And as a proof and an illustration of the grace that Christ exhibits. That's what Matthew's calling is. It's not just come quit your job and come wander the countryside with me like a, like a gypsy or a hobo. Come and follow me for a reason. Jesus says, Matthew, come follow me. And Jesus made him a preacher of the gospel. And Matthew writes the gospel account for us. He was called to this, someone who was not worthy of it at all. Now let's look here at the latter half of verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, what? Follow me. And he rose and followed him. It's interesting, every time that we see Jesus calling anyone to follow him in the Gospels, there's never a hesitation. If there is a hesitation, like the rich young ruler, 
they, we don't really see that they followed. Those who follow Christ respond, and they follow. Luke's account, if you look at Luke chapter 5, Luke's account adds the descriptor that Levi... Now, Matthew is Matthew only shares his name, uh, his Greek name Matthew here in his gospel, but in Luke's account and in Mark's account, the name is Levi, which would have been his given birth name. But why does Matthew share it here in his account? It's because he, he, if he had used his Jewish name, that would have implied that he was included in the Jewish tradition, but he was not. He was excluded. But in Luke's account, here's what he says. He says that, that, that Levi gave up the exquisite lifestyle and the career to follow Jesus. He says, and Levi, and leaving everything, Levi follows Jesus. Matthew's account doesn't say he lives, leaves everything. It just says that he rose and followed him. It's Luke's account that gives us the deeper understanding of his, of his following. He left everything to follow Jesus. What does he leave? He leaves a very lucrative profession. As corrupt as it was, Matthew clearly had financial wealth. And we see that as we read deeper here in Matthew's account, as he goes and and Matthew has a great feast for Jesus in a nice house with a lot of good food. But one who follows Jesus is not one who follows from a distance, but rather follows Jesus nearby. That's what we have to understand here. How many of us as children, whenever our mothers would take us to the grocery store, mama wanted us nearby, holding that hand, you got to hold, or, or telling the child to hold on to the buggy, something. But then how many of us as adults, when we follow someone, we just follow from a distance? Like right now, we have, we have social distancing is the new norm, right? Do we follow six feet apart? Husbands, do we ask our wives to follow us two paces behind anymore? No. But how many of us, when we're following someone or following a crowd, we'd say, I'll follow you, but I'll do it from over here. The idea of following here with Matthew implies something that is different than just what we would normally feel is following. The one who truly follows Jesus is one who carries nothing with him, leaving everything. That means leaving the worldly ideas behind, leaving all secular norms behind. We don't syncretize worldly ideas with the following of Jesus. It is a pure 100% following or it's no following at all. No one holds out with past sins of a lifestyle. You don't bring your sinful lifestyle with you into following Jesus. Matthew left his sinful lifestyle to follow Jesus. No nominal Christianity here. Now, the the Greek phrase here for Jesus' calling of Matthew the follow me, it indicates it's a very specific definition for this Greek term. It implies a not a following from a distance, but following in close proximity. Imagine walking the same steps as the one that you're following so closely that as soon as they take that step, you're stepping right into the same footprint. That's the idea of following here. That's what Jesus is calling Matthew to. Matthew willingly separates himself from his sinful life to follow Jesus as closely as he can. 
right nearby. Now look here at verses 10 and 11. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So the scene has shifted from Jesus on the seashore calling Matthew and Matthew leaving everything behind. We now go to Matthew's house. And Matthew is grateful. And Levi, actually, and Levi made him a great feast. This is what Luke's account, Luke chapter 5 says, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. Can you picture the scene? A great banquet? A fun time? Why is this the case? We see this here because Matthew, following Jesus, actually invites his other tax collectors and sinner friends to come and meet the man who's changed his life. That's another sign of someone who is genuinely obeying Christ and following him. Not only do you depart from your lifestyle and your wishes and your desires and you follow Jesus 100%, you also want to invite others to experience the same. And this is what Matthew is doing. He welcomed Jesus and his disciples into his home for a great feast. And this is a sign of how revered Jesus was to Matthew. Matthew honored Jesus so greatly. He said, I want to introduce you to my friends, the corrupt ones. It says also, it's a response of Jesus' calling to Matthew and Matthew's committed change. It is a public testimony of this new calling and following of Christ. This is why whenever a new believer comes and says, I have committed to Christ, Jesus has changed my life, I bring them up front. I say, let's do a public witness of it. Tell everybody, especially the family of God, this church family here, we will hold that new believer accountable. You have publicly claimed the name of Christ. You have publicly shared with us what Jesus has done for you. He has called you and you have followed him. We are going to hold you accountable too, right? Now, lest we forget here, Matthew, he's celebrating publicly this new life in Christ with his friends. And Matthew is described as leaving everything, which would include the, the, the corrupt occupation, but also his co-workers and his professional relationships. Yet G, Matthew, he brings these folks to his house. I think we get a scene, a, a, an implication here that perhaps, even though Matthew leaves everything, it doesn't mean that he sells his house and goes wandering. Now, he may have lost his income stream, <laughs> And he may have even lost some of his professional relationships as a result. And clearly with the Pharisees we're getting ready to see, he even, not only was he on the outs with them to begin with, he's even further on the outs with them now. But he had a nice home where he could celebrate and, and host people. Let's look here at verse 11 and 12. As Matthew is showing kindness to his circle of friends because Jesus showed kindness to him first. We now see in verses 11 and 12, there were some folks there at this this banquet that were not very kind. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? (laughs) Typical Pharisaical response. How many of us, even as Christians, we respond the same way? New Christians come to faith. They're excited. They want to introduce 
them, they want to introduce all of their unsaved friends to Jesus. Oh, why are you still hanging out with them? And we shake our finger at them. Well, what if they're introducing Jesus to them? And it's a genuine excitement to say, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. Why do we crush that? Now, that's a difference than someone who goes back to the sinful lifestyle. We're not talking about that here. Matthew's not going back to his sinful lifestyle. He is a changed man, and now a preacher of the gospel, sharing the gospel and sharing what Jesus has done for him with all of his corrupt friends. Yet the Pharisees challenge him. But they don't talk to Jesus directly. They talk to his disciples. He says here, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? A common question in the Gospels. The Pharisees did not recognize Jesus and his authority at all. That's what we see here. They did not recognize the office that Jesus holds. They, and, and, and because they did not recognize Jesus for who he was, they, shift, they, they wanted to shift attention away really from their own sin to the public perception of the sin and the vices of the lower classes. That is typical pharisaical attitude. Don't look at my sin. Don't look at my negative lifestyle. Don't even look at my hoity-toity, look down at you through my nose lifestyle. Let's look at those poor sinners. That's what they're doing. They're trying to shift attention away from themselves. But look here at Jesus' response. Verse 12. But when he heard it, this is Jesus, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The Pharisees were talking about tax collectors and sinners, and Jesus talks about a physician and those who are sick. I think we can see a clear connection here that we've seen the last couple of weeks as we've gone through Matthew's gospel. Whenever the gospels talk about sickness and illness, Yes, Jesus is healing the physical. Yet why is he doing so? Because it is a sign that points to the greater spiritual illness that all humanity has, and that is that we are sick. We are, we are diseased with sin. That's the bigger point here. That's what Jesus is responding to. He taught, he called, Jesus calls these sinners patients with a disease. Now, one of the things that I have been uh, granted the privilege of doing over the last five years is to teach uh, ethics courses at the community college here at Ball State. And many of the students who come to the ethics courses are actually students in the medical field. They're, they're, they're training to become nurses. They're training to become EMTs. They're going to be some kind of, some, do something in the, phys, in the medical field. And one of the things that is very important in medical sciences. Whenever you were go to the hospital, whenever you go to a doctor or a nurse, would you rather have a medical professional, whether it be a doctor or a nurse or somebody else, look at you like a Pharisee and say, why are you sick? And shake their finger at you and blame you for being sick. Why are you sick? Why are you here? Or are you expecting that medical professional to actually show us some care, kindness, so when we're looking at the ethics of medical care, there is a term called the ethics of care. There is a morality to showing kindness and love to someone 
who is ill. Whenever you are taking care of your sick children, mothers, are you mean to them? Or do you want to go and show them kindness and compassion? This is what Jesus is showing here. When he's talking about, when when the Pharisees are talking about the, the sinners and those outcasts, there is no kindness here at all. Yet Jesus is saying, here's why I'm having dinner with these tax collectors and sinners. It's because they are, they have a disease and I am the physician. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do need compassion and care. So what is Jesus showing these Pharisees? He's really kind of being, he's pointing out to the Pharisees, you are also sick with your self-righteousness, but your illness is blinding you to the truth of what God is doing here. Jesus is the physician. He is sent to care for the diseased. He's sent to care for the sinners. And Jesus shows compassionate care to these patients, if you will. I'm here to have dinner with these tax collectors and sinners because, number one, Matthew invited me. It would be rude for me not to be here. But number two, I have called Matthew himself someone who is diseased with sin. And I have shown him compassion by accepting him and loving him and calling him to follow. Amen? This is central to what Jesus is doing. Now, it's interesting. now look at verse 13. Verse 13 is very important, and we're going to close out with verse 13. But Jesus here, here's a deeper response. Here's the second layer of response to the Pharisees. Jesus says, go and learn what this means. So now, see, the Pharisees were trying to challenge Jesus, and Jesus says, okay, great teachers of the law, go do some homework. Anybody like doing homework? Nobody likes doing homework. I'm getting blank stares across the congregation. Nobody loves doing homework. But Jesus has told these teachers of the law, these great learned men, go learn something. Go do some homework. What does he quote here? Look here, verse 13. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is pointing these Pharisees to something that they should have already known in Hosea chapter 6. So if you can, flip over to Hosea chapter 6 with me. We're going to close with this. Because this is important to understand what Jesus is doing here with Matthew. Matthew chapter, I mean, sorry, Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. Jesus cites verse 6 specifically, but I think we need to read verses 1 through 6 to get an understanding of what this is pointing to. Verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring, as the spring rains that water the earth. Verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets, 
I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. Verse 6, for I desire steadfast love is my translations. Others say I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now this is the voice of God speaking through the prophet Hosea. What's he doing here? And why is Jesus mentioning this to the Pharisees? Jesus cites Hosea's prophecy as the basis and the purpose of his mission as the Christ here on earth. The mission even deeper of why he was calling Matthew to follow, why he was having dinner with the tax collectors and the sinners. This idea of I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus cites it here in Matthew chapter 9, but he also repeats it in Matthew chapter 12 when the Pharisees once again scold Jesus for allowing his disciples to eat on the Sabbath and collect the grain. (laughs) Jesus cites this again there. The response here in Hosea is the response of the healed and forgiven called sinner to the mercy, to the kindness of Christ and not through one's own sacrifice. Because in Hosea's prophecy, what had happened was, once again, Israel had fallen away and had embraced religious ritual and tradition and forgotten the love of their Father God Almighty. Jesus, when he cites this, he shows the Pharisees their self-righteous error, where they felt above, when they felt like they were above these polluted sinners. Jesus shows them in their own studies of Hosea what they should have already known all along. And what is that? Is that sacrifice is nothing compared to the mercies of God. Coming to church on a regular basis is important. Please come. Gather with the believers. Gather with the brothers and sisters of Christ. We are called to do that as the church. This is why this last year during COVID-19, it was such a struggle for the real Christians and the real church because suddenly we, in many situations, people were not allowed to or it was difficult to gather. It's important. We are called to do this. Yet if even in our context, if we substitute church attendance with the mercies of God, we're no different than the Pharisees. And this is what Hosea was telling us here in this prophecy. God was speaking through Hosea that that Israel had embraced the rituals of worship as their righteousness before God. Verse 1, God is calling the people in Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. Now that's an interesting truth here we see. Who is it that has caused those who need healing to be to need healing god he has torn them he has caused pain in them so that he can heal them it sounds cruel i mean i i can't imagine going to someone and causing them harm in order for me to then be compassionate to them It almost sounds kind of psychotic, doesn't it? 
I mean, I think I've read some books and seen some movies over the years where some mothers would do that. They would cause harm to their children, cause them to be sick in order for them to be compassionate and nurse them. That's kind of, we look at that and think, but this is not what God's doing necessarily. What is God doing here? He will break our addiction to sin. He will cause us harm to our spirits in order for us to be healed and restored by Him. That's not unkind at all. That's the greatest mercy of all, that God Himself, Hosea is telling us that God is prophesying through Him that God will break us, He will tear us, He will strike us down. For what purpose? So that He may bind us up, so that He may heal us. How many of us have been sick before, a broken bone before, some kind of medical issue before that it takes you a long time to recover? Been there? And while you're broken and while you're healing, while you're sick or, or whatever it is your medical situation is, are you laying there in the bed or, or sitting on the couch waiting for the day that you feel better? Look here at verse 2 in Hosea 6. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. I mean, now clearly from a Christian perspective, that's clearly speaking about Jesus and his crucifixion and resurrection. You can easily make that connection and you can rightly do so. Yet think about this deeper. If you are sick, if you are broken, especially in our modern age of instant gratification and instant healing, (laughs) If it takes you two days to heal, when is it going to be over? Madison, are you still dealing with some of that? Yeah, with her tonsils being taken out this last week. I thought, it was, I, thought I was going to be better in 24 hours and I'm still sick. I'm not saying you're saying that, but you're probably feeling that, aren't you? You did say that to mom. Okay, because I keep asking your mom if you've been a good patient, but you still, even in that, you're still, she's still a good patient. You're frustrated. Do we get frustrated when we're sick? That's kind of what Hosea is talking about here too. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Those two days of waiting and anticipating builds us up to the point that when Jesus does heal us and binds us up, how would you respond after all of that waiting for healing and that waiting for the restoration? How are you going to feel toward the physician when he does that? Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, you've restored me, you've healed me, even though God said he was the one who broke me. I'm so glad he did. Now I'm better. See what's going on here? And then as we go down through three verses 3, 4, and 5, the prophecy here now speaks about Ephraim. Now, a little bit of background if you're not familiar. Ephraim is that imagery in especially the minor prophets of, of the descendants of Esau. Right? Remember, remember Jacob and Esau? Remember that story? Where Esau, what, he sells his birthright? And so the covenant of God comes through who God wanted to come through anyway. <laughs> right, Jacob? But Esau was the one who sold his birthright, and he was kind of scattered, and he starts his own little nation, and that's what Ephraim... Ephraim is the imagery in the Old Testament of those children of God who actually don't follow God completely, 100%. They kind of harmonize a little bit of the world with a little bit of God. 
That's when you're reading about Ephraim, they're the, they're the ones that don't really obey God fully. Yeah, but no. And so when we think about this, it's kind of what the Pharisees were doing, right? Uh, in Hosea chapter 7, verse 8, he says, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. That's a total opposite description of who Matthew was. When Matthew follows Christ, he was not a cake half turned. He was a fully baked, fully done follower of Christ. And so now we come here to verse 6 of Hosea chapter 6. God's prophecy through Hosea is saying, don't be like Ephraim. They are half-baked. They're not going to follow me fully. They're not going to be fully restored because they're not devoted 100%. So in verse 6, for I desire mercy, or my translation, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, to be a fully committed follower of Christ, to not be half-baked requires what Matthew tells us in his testimony of his calling. He left everything and followed Jesus and became a preacher of the gospel. This, This full desire of God, I desire mercy, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. If you flip back over to Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, this mercy is this steadfast love of God. It's this, in other words, what Jesus is telling these Pharisees, I have already spoken through the prophet Hosea, and you've forgotten what I've told you, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, it's not that he desires our sacrifice to gain his attention. God would rather show kindness and forgiveness than to sit back and wait for us to sacrifice and to go through the rituals. Which is better? To receive kindness, to receive mercy, or to receive a uh, checkoff list, uh, a rote method of healing? Which is better? It's mercy and kindness. This mercy and kindness in the Old Testament is this idea of God's loving, steadfast presence. It is this idea of the Hebrew word called chesed. We see it all throughout the Psalms. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. This steadfast love, this chesed, is the mercy and the kindness of God, His presence with us. That's what we desire. And that's what God desires too. He desires desires His presence. He desires to give us kindness and grace more so than to demand sacrifice from us. That's what He wants. Now, likewise, and there's the second layer to this, as God shows His chesed, as He shows His merciful kindness to us through Jesus Christ, we too are to share that same kindness and mercy to others. Not just to those that we like, not just to those who are easy to like, but more so to those who are difficult to like. Those who are in need of salvation more so than anyone else 
are the ones that Jesus, even through this story or calling of Matthew, is saying, now go and do the same thing. When it comes to sin, all of us have the same experience. We're all sinners. And God sends Jesus Christ to bind ritual and sacrifice up and to say, forget the frivolous ceremony. That's just an excuse. I want genuine followers. I want genuine children to love me. I want you to follow Jesus Christ as He calls you. And I'm going to close with this last point. Think of this. Matthew does not go to Jesus and say, pretty please, Jesus, can I be with you? Jesus doesn't ask Matthew to ask for forgiveness. That's something that I have, I think the Lord has really shown me more so in this last month or two of my own personal study and reflection of the Gospels. I'm seeing more clearly here that forgiveness does not always demand that we ask for it, even though we do. Jesus doesn't wait for the paralytic to ask for forgiveness. He says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus doesn't ask Matthew to ask for forgiveness. Matthew doesn't come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness, but Jesus does. Why? What's more important? It's not the words that we say. It's the heart. Jesus saw the heart of the paralytic. He saw the heart of Matthew. And he calls them to follow. And he grants forgiveness despite their request of it. Now, that'll blow your mind. Because if we depend on ritual and sacrifice, we're also going to depend on do you say the sinner's prayer or not. If you haven't said the sinner's prayer, you're not forgiven. How many of us have been guilty of that thought? Jesus will forgive who he will forgive because he knows the heart better than we do. He knew the heart of Matthew. Matthew's not giving us any details here, but we could probably discern that Matthew was probably very miserable in his condition. (laughs) The Lord was working on him and dealing with him. And when Jesus comes and says, follow me, he follows. No ritual, no ceremony. He gives up everything and he's totally committed to the Lord because God knew his heart. Jesus knew where he was. And he said, follow me. That's important. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And as Matthew has shared with us his encounter with Jesus, we see the several things here, and we've looked at it, we've talked about it. You've shown us much here. And I'm thankful, Lord, that you've shown us in your word what it means to be forgiven but also to be devoted to your Son. It is not what we say. It's not what we do. It's not our actions. It is the kindness, the grace. The, it is the act of mercy where Jesus meets us where we are. And it is the grace that he pours out upon us. And he forgives us even though we don't deserve it. And it's because of that, God, that we are here this morning worshiping you. Many in this room have experienced this calling from God, this calling of your Son, Jesus Christ, to follow Him. 
Some in this room have not. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would continue to soften those who are hearing your words. Those who are still struggling with embracing the secular world, with embracing things that make them happy and make them pleased, and and it's joyful, but it's not of you. Lord, I pray that you would show them that there's something such much greater than what we're holding on to, and that, that which is much greater is your Son, Jesus Christ, who loves us, who calls us to follow, who says your sins are forgiven. I pray that everyone in this room would hear those words from your Son as you deem fit and at the right time and in the right way. Well, God, as we close out our worship today, I pray that you would go with us and you would remind us of Matthew and his encounter with the Christ. When he says, follow, we do. And then as a result, we're so excited as Matthew was, we want to introduce Jesus to everybody. Not because of what we've done or not because of any ritual or any kind of status in the society, but because we know we're not worthy and we show everyone else the same mercy and kindness that Christ has shown us. What a message, Father. Thank you. Let this last time of singing today, Lord, bring you glory. But Lord, I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us even deeper than what we are seeing right now. Use this time, Lord, for your glory to change us, to draw us to you. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen.